0: all right that's the foghorn and you know what that means welcome to the canvas ships podcast and we're going to try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a little bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day i'm chris Cavis
1: and i'm chris Cervella. Tuesday, December 7th, marks the 80th anniversary of the 1941 Japanese attack on the U.S. fleet at Pearl Harbor. The surprise attack caught a fleet in harbor just waking up to its Sunday morning, and more than 2,400 Americans died in the raid. The slogan, Remember Pearl Harbor, was coined that very day and has rung down through the decades as a rallying cry to not be caught napping by a determined enemy. We'll talk with two noted Naval professionals about what the legacy means or should mean to today's Navy. But first, a roundup of Naval news around the world.
0: The USS Harry S. Truman Carrier Strike Group, deployed from Norfolk on December 1st. Carrier Air Wing 1 is embarked aboard the ship. In addition to the cruiser San Jacinto, four destroyers deployed with Truman, accompanied by the Norwegian frigate Fridtjof Nansen, the first time a Norwegian warship has deployed with a U.S. carrier strike group.
1: The MQ-25 Stingray unmanned test aircraft was craned aboard the carrier USS George H.W. Bush at Norfolk on November 30th to begin a series of deck handling drills. The Boeing-owned plane, the first unmanned jet aircraft designed to operate from aircraft carriers, will remain on board for several weeks. The bush is to carry out some of the trials at sea to get a feel for how the aircraft handles on a wind-blown flight deck. The Arleigh Burke-class destroyer Frank E. Peterson Jr. was delivered to the U.S. Navy November 30th from shipbuilder Huntington Ingalls Industries at Pascagoula, Mississippi. The Flight 2 Alpha Destroyer is named for the United States Marine Corps' first African-American aviator and general officer. Frank Peterson flew more than 350 combat missions during the Korean and Vietnam Wars.
0: Taiwan revealed on December 2nd that it held a, a secret keel ceremony on November 16th to mark the beginning of construction of its first domestically built submarine, a development that China strenuously protests. The sub is being built at CSBC Shipbuilding Corporation in Kaohsiung and is to be delivered in 2024. A number of countries are reported to be providing significant behind-the-scenes assistance in the construction of the submarine. The Korean parliament on December 3rd, approved more than $6 million U.S. to begin the preliminary design of a new light aircraft carrier dubbed CVX. The hotly debated move aims at producing a ship that would be operational by 2033. Those opposed to the project fear costs will be exorbitant, and in the words of one opponent, the ship will be a money-eating hippopotamus.
1: Meanwhile, China, on November 11th, commissioned its fourth Type 55 Nanchang, or Renhai, destroyer. The ships which displace around 12,000 tons are much more heavily armed than previous Chinese Navy surface ships. The first ship was commissioned in early 2020, and at least a dozen more are under construction in two shipyards. And that's a look at Naval News this week.
0: As we said in the open, this week marks 80 years since the Japanese surprised the U.S. fleet in Pearl Harbor and inflicted a stunning defeat on the American Navy. But what lessons are remembered today from that attack? What does that slogan, Remember Pearl Harbor, even mean to the citizens of today's Navy and of the United States itself? Paul Giara and Jerry Roncolato are both former naval officers, deeply familiar with the events of the months and years leading up to the Pearl Harbor attack and the lessons that may be applicable to today's strategic situation regarding the U.S., China, and Russia. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks, Chris.
3: Thanks, thanks, Chris. It's great to be here.
0: All right, I'd like to ask both of you that question. And Paul, why don't you go first? How do you think today's Navy thinks about the Pearl Harbor attack?
3: Well, uh, there's a saying in the Navy, no more Pearl Harbors, but I'm not sure anybody really means it. Uh, I don't think more to the point that the Navy is using the lessons of Pearl Harbor to get ready for what some of us think is clearly coming on there. There are very clear parallels between uh, Japan in the 30s and 40s and China in the in the aughts and tens. And uh, I think that has yet to be really correlated by naval planners or national security planners.
0: What kind of parallels?
3: A coming conflict that's, that's late to be recognized, a reluctance to get ready, a unwillingness to consider the scope of the conflict that's coming. Uh, it's not it, its not a story of complete unpreparedness. I think one of the main things that Jerry Roncolato and I talk about all the time, and I wanna give Jerry full credit for this, is that we were not fully prepared, but we were getting prepared. And well, that's okay as far as it went, but it didn't go f- far enough clearly. And as a result was, uh, a close run thing although in hindsight maybe the the end was a foregone conclusion but i don't know if we had had to invade japan we'd be thinking about japan mainland we'd be thinking about the war in a in a much different way than we do now in 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 the terms of triumphism triumphism uh that has sort of cascaded and echoed
2: down the years
0: Jerry, what do you think
2: yeah i well i agree with paul i think the most the Navy today thinks about Pearl Harbor is the equivalent of a bumper sticker. Uh, you're, I, I don't even know if they remember the remember Pearl Harbor piece. And I think, uh, most of, I would, I, my guess would be most of the, uh, sailors on active duty today are so young. They, they, they may not even have been in the service or, perhaps even alive, when the last version of the movie Pearl Harbor came out um, with all its CGI and wonderfulness. Uh, Whereas, you know, in in my case, uh, I I remember uh, doing my fourth grade project at a Catholic school in Mansfield, Ohio, was doing a map and presentation on the setup at Pearl Harbor when the Japanese attacked. Um, Now, some would suggest that that represented a somewhat deviant childhood, but it was part of and parcel of what was going on. I was in fourth grade. It was only the 23rd anniversary of Pearl Harbor. But to get to Paul's point and add to Paul's point, there is a wonderful piece written by Henry Luce on December 22nd, 1941. He was the editor of Life Magazine. It's called The Day of Wrath. And just a real quick uh, sentence, two sentences here talking about the attack on December 7th, he says, but it was also a sign. It was a sign of all the weakness and wrongness of American life in recent years. The thousand odd dead at Pearl Harbor that first day were not merely the victims of Japanese treachery. They were the victims also of a weak and faltering America that had lost its way and failed the world in leadership. And I think in that sense, that's exactly where we're at today. And and much like the people, the civilians, the American people in the 20s and 30s, they not only had forgotten history, they had been told history was not going to repeat itself. And they were concerned with what was going on internally. And that, I think, is a lesson that the Navy has let go and doesn't, doesn't think about.
1: Jerry, you were kind enough to share that piece before we... Um you know, before we taped. And, uh, I I was struck by that quote. I, I, this is the first time I had, uh, had read it. it. It illuminates where I think a lot of folks are today. Um, the people that I think do think about Pearl Harbor view it in the sense of a sucker punch. They don't view it in the sense of the strategic failures that led up to that sucker punch, uh, and the unpreparedness. How do you change, um, the, the lack of preparedness. How do you get people's attention now and begin to get them uh, to prepare? Uh, you and Paul have been writing uh, with the Naval Institute, uh, you know, for the last year, you and a number of other Navalists have been writing as part of the American Sea Power Project Um, encouraging vigorous debate on the future of the Navy. And it's one thing to to talk about what the Navy of the future should be uh, in terms of size and capability. It's another to get people to really pay attention and avoid uh, the type of failure that led to Pearl Harbor. So what do we need to do to avoid that that same type of failure?
3: So um, let me start by saying that my sense of this, especially in the Pacific, but not just in the Pacific, I think more globally, that then, certainly in the minds of the leadership, and now, but much less so, in fact, not at all in the minds of the leadership, it's quite clear to me, at least, and I think Jerry shares this, that the Navy is central. And I don't mean this in the context of arguing and elbowing for resources. Uh, The services have to work together. and they need to have the resources that they need to get the job done. But because the Navy is global and the Navy is maritime and the global system now, as then, depends upon freedom of the seas and control of the seas. Uh, this is this is simply not in the minds of the leadership. There's an argument even now, even among Navalists <laughs> about whether the Navy is central. And, uh, and so this is, this is not good. Uh, in 1940, 41, 38, 36, 35, the leadership from the president through the Congress and certainly in the, throughout the Navy understood that centrality. So I'd say that the first thing to do is to get that back to, uh, right dead square in the middle of people's thinking without getting into the jointness argument. Uh, during the the period we're talking about, jointness was actually surprisingly successful, certainly in the Pacific, uh, and very unselfconscious. Uh, Both MacArthur and Nimitz practiced jointness as if they'd been doing it their whole whole lives. Uh, But obviously we're nowhere near that now.
0: There's also the the, the thing, the parallel that strikes me is the constant underestimating of the abilities of your potential enemy um japan was downgraded by the west um despite the west having been part of japan's reawakening beginning in the 1850s and the, they were really taught naval warfare by the british royal navy um they had, had a stunning victory over the russians and the russo japanese war in the early 1900s um, but still people thought of them and, it, and a lot of it was racist as well That they just weren't tough. They weren't. They were copycats. Uh, Their their ships and guns and planes just weren't of the caliber that that the the American Navy was. And and you sort of see these echoes today. Um, I mean, it's really surprising how sometimes you talk about um, you put things up on social media about the Chinese are doing this, Chinese doing that. Then they then people will go on, yeah, but it's the Chinese. What do you expect? And uh, I mean I do mean, do you all see that anywhere to either of you, Jerry or Jerry, do you see that in? the? In, yeah, in the ab- today? I
2: mean, absolutely, Chris. Um, I think there, there's to, to address the question questions from both of you and, and to add on the pulsing, yeah, I, I think um, if you if just look at this the uh, recently released Global Force posture review, uh, it's been pretty heavily, Criticized in the media, in the press, and rightly so. It, it it took ten months and came up with, well, we're going to talk more to our allies. Uh, that's not ind- indicative of a fundamental reassessment of what's going on. After all, with with China's emergence and and increasing assertiveness by Xi Jinping, um, the the, the, the geostrategic environment has completely changed, and yet. The, the military in this country seems hell-bent <clears throat> hell on continuing to do, you know, business as usual, and and it, you just don't see the kind of fundamental, you know, rethinking of, of the situation. For example, in, in, you know, up until 1934, the Navy's War Plan Orange envisaged the battle fleet steaming out to the Philippines and trouncing Japanese fleet and calling it a day. It was about a two-week war uh, up until 1934. After that, they said, hmm, Japanese have gotten pretty good and we're not going to be able to get there and be effective when we do. So we have to come up with something different. What they come up with kind of an island hopping campaign, which is how it actually played out. So if you look at that, if you look at the interwar period, And how the navy was thinking about it for arguably from 1908 on but but specifically how it was carried out from 1934 until the war started in december of 41 and still we got caught with our pants down at pearl harbor the asiatic fleet disappeared the troops in the philippines were sacrificed and it took us it took us six months to get get going that you know, many people look at that and say, you know, we did all that work before the war started and and we still screwed up, so why do it? And when I say many people, uh, many of those are active duty Navy officers. Um, On the other hand, if you look at it and say that all that preparation we did before the war internally to the Navy, um, not to mention what Roosevelt and his, his administration were doing, but the Navy was thinking hard about this and training hard for it. So that After you know, on December eighth, nineteen forty-one, the Navy was able to pick itself up, dust itself off, and go at the Japanese. It was very shortly thereafter that we we started doing uh, you know air raids against the uh, the Japanese islands in the in the in the uh, Marshalls and Gilberts. So so it it, that's a different way of looking at it. And and so my sense is there's number one, you know, Chris Cervello asked you know, what are, how can we avoid that? And, and the answer is what Paul said, you know, uh, realizing the Navy has a role. And I think the, the fundamental question is, Do we? is it gonna take another Pearl Harbor? And uh, the, the answer is based on what history tells us, democracies lag the problem all the time. And strategic warning uh, is only useful if you act on it. it and in, in, in the case of Pearl Harbor, there was there was a lot of warning out there in different pockets of the intel community and, and the diplomatic community that said, "Hey, this this is going to happen," and even Pearl Harbor should be considered a threat. So how do you how do you how do you as a democracy take a people and motivate them to to act? Before it, be, before the garbage gets up to their right. knees.
0: So you know everybody can read history, but people can read different things into history. Correct. Um, just because everybody knows it doesn't mean they understand it the same way. Uh, there was a article uh, the U.S. Naval Institute Proceedings published this week on uh, from Bob Work, uh, former Under Secretary of the Navy and Deputy Defense Secretary, um, and Bob is essentially talking about. To try and summarize that, he, he, he int- introduces an awful lot of history, as his preamble, and then um, seems to be saying we can't really afford to have the forward deployed presence that we've maintained for many, many, many years, decades, um, that it costs too much, we don't have the resources, the Navy's too big. He advocates essentially pulling back and surging, uh, and surging if need be. Um, so... The, the there was there were arguments in the fort in the late 30s and in, in 1940 and 41 about where should the us fleet be based the us fleet was actually most of it had been moved from the atlantic to the pacific um and but it was based on the west coast um franklin roosevelt wanted to move it to pearl harbor to be closer to the japanese the um, the head of the U.S. Fleet, Admiral Richardson, protested vehemently, and when he was overruled, he resigned. The fleet went to Pearl Harbor. Uh, Richardson was, was, was afraid it would be more open to attack in Pearl Harbor. Um, but that you know, there are different ways to have read that move. You were trying to deter the Japanese and make them think that they were that we were serious about about uh, opposing them and their aims in uh, in the Western Pacific or was it a threat so you have all these different feelings about where should you position your forces and that's going on today um i mean can when you talk about the debate then and the situation today is deterrence is, is the u.s navy still a deterrent factor when it when we have the seventh fleet based in uh, in japan when we do FONOPs operations freedom of navigation operations in the the South China Sea or in the Taiwan Strait? Or is it better, in your mind, to just come home, save money?
3: Um,
0: Paul, go for uh, The
3: the preparation for World War II was not an unqualified success, obviously, in, in, in the Pacific, that is. And the decision to not fortify Guam was made because the Congress wouldn't spend enough in order to provide significant air power forward deployed. Um, so keep that in mind in the context of the conversation we're having now. Um, I, Bob Work is my intellectual and certainly bureaucratic and strategic thinking hero, but I, I really, really disagree with him here. I think he's put his finger on the wrong issue. The issue is not whether or not we should have Ford presence. I believe that it's quite clear that forward presence is key to deterrence, preparedness, and allied integration, without which uh, you have no chance of of starting the war on the right foot or continuing the war in any feasible way. However, the point is not, therefore, the point is not forward presence or not. The point is, are we going to spend enough money to do what has to be done? Are we gonna decide the way the Congress decided, despite all of the naval buildups that were going on, this is at the same exact time, uh, to not <coughs> provide the air power for Guam, and then the rest, as they say, is history. Or are we gonna spend what is required to maintain a battle fleet, not a fleet in being, but a battle fleet that is forward deployed uh, with everything that goes with that, with the sustainability and the logistics and the, and so on, and the force structure that um, can operate so as to um, dominate the first island chain and preclude Chinese naval air and ground successes in the, in the Asia Pacific littorals. Uh, that's the question, not uh, pull back the fleet so we can have an easier time of it.
2: Adding to that, I think the, a fundamental, mistake here in this in the, in the debate in, in, in Mr. Work's uh, article in, in that argument is that, you know, the piece I read at this outset from Henry Luce uh, underscored the fact that part of the problem in 1941 was that America after 1918 had forsaken its role as a world leader. And the U.S. Navy then and more so today is responsible for a lot more than getting ready to fight the Chinese Navy. It is responsible for ensuring and underwriting the global security and economic network that was put in place by this country and its allies after World War II. And why was that put in place? Because Roosevelt rightly realized that that by 1939 that they were that the world was repeating 1914. And he literally said to his advisors, we're not going to do that again. We're going to have a different world after this gets over with. And we're going to put America out, out there as a leader. And, and that is a fundamentally different aspect than what we had done before. What in many ways, and I, I don't think Mr. Work means this, but the the way it will be taken is let's return to kind of Fortress America and let the world go the way it goes, and and, and without Ford presence, whether it's the Navy—I mean, it's clearly Navy—but also Air Force, Marines, you know, the Joint Force, sustaining our alliances and partnerships, all of that. Without that, you you are you are you're, you're going to bring chaos and, and hellfire down on the whole planet. Walter Lippman, uh, who was a, a famous he's unknown today, I'm sure, but he was a famous columnist back in the day, uh, wrote uh, wrote a piece, and he wrote a book in 1943, said, you know, foreign policy shield of the republic or something to that effect. And one of the things he says in there is that America, Americans' idealism creates overseas commitments that its isolationism refuses to pay for. And in the act of so doing, it creates power vacuums into which aggressive nations step. And then we have to pay extraordinary amounts of blood and treasure to restore the situation. I think that's a very apropos description of where we're at today.
1: Uh, I, I agree. Um, it, you know, th- this is a topic both um, on the lessons of Pearl Harbor uh, and on uh, the the practical uh, meaning of uh, Secretary Work's writing that we could spend days on. Um, I, I greatly appreciate uh, you, you guys um, providing context and for helping uh, the audience, both through your writing and through this conversation, begin to think about these uh, these tough issues. Um, Chris and I have talked about uh, a, a number of times on the show the, the concern about resourcing and the fact that you get the navy that, that you pay for and whether that's a forward deployed navy or whether that's a garrison navy or whether it's a navy that's preparing for war you still have the challenge of, of resourcing it um and so understanding what the plan is to resource it and then actually having the political will of the national leadership to resource it um you, you know re- remains a challenge so hopefully uh conversations like this help to uh Spur thinking and spur action among those that are in the arena. Um, so, thank you again for for joining us. We hope you'll you'll come back. We will see where this conversation leads us. Thanks, both Great. Jerry and Paul.
2: Thanks, guys. Yeah, pleasure. Thank you. Now hear this. Now hear this.
1: All right. Well, we know what that means. Well, for generations, the concept of forward presence was central to U.S. naval strategy. This week, a noted strategist and retired Marine offered a different idea, and Cavus, along with many others, isn't happy.
0: The cost of keeping a major fleet forward deployed around the globe week after month after year is unarguably immense, since shortly after the end of World War II, the United States has paid that cost, buying the ships and aircraft, supporting their maintenance, and training and supporting the people to keep it all going. There's no question That continued support of those efforts can be exhausting, not just for the military, but for politicians and citizens as well. Other nations tried to maintain a similar naval posture. The British Royal Navy all but guaranteed order on the world's waves for nearly 150 years after the Battle of Trafalgar, but the crumbling post World War II British Empire, not to mention the rise and predominance of the US Navy, led the British to dramatically and drastically pull back by the mid 1960s and essentially go home. After that, the Soviets tried to challenge the U.S. on the high seas and were themselves bankrupted by the effort, even though they never came close to parity. Now China is engaged in an immense effort to build a Navy not just to rival, but to outlast, outdo, and eventually replace the U.S. Navy on the high seas. They are not there yet, but every month sees them improve in any number of areas. Countering that rise can be, it is exhausting, and that weariness is evidenced in former Deputy Defense Secretary Robert Work's piece in this month's Naval Institute Proceedings magazine, titled, A Slavish Devotion to Forward Presence Has Nearly Broken the U.S. Navy. Essentially, Work argues that the U.S. doesn't have the will to pay the price to maintain its worldwide presence and is willing to pay only for a Navy that just stays home and only goes out from time to time or when needed. I couldn't disagree more with that strategy, but it is clear the nation, Congress, and the people are not paying the attention necessary to pay the price to continue policies that have worked for more than seven decades. The debate, whether to continue or or go home, needs to be held. Hopefully a debate that ends with a consensus that freedom really isn't free, that sometimes you need to pay for it. And yes, that phrase can be taken with more than one meaning.
1: Well said, Chris. That does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello.
0: And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye. <laughs>